Over the radio, the SEALs reported Bin Laden was dead. The news of Bin Laden's death brought celebrations to the streets of the United States. But it also haunted the world with memories of a clear September morning a decade before, when the streets of America were choked by terror. That mystique and that legacy goes way, way back to even Vietnam and before. You know, the enemy knew the men in green faces, or if they were coming for you, you weren't coming back. Since World War II, SEALs and their forefathers have faced whatever threat the enemies of each generation have posed. From Hitler's beaches to Bin Laden's terror. While the perils have changed and will continue to, the invisible men behind the face masks still claim a common heritage and future. No matter how sophisticated they or their foes become, they are simply frogmen. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special guest uh, who's back on the podcast. Uh, he was on, uh, I don't know, a, a, a year or two ago. Uh, his name is Remy Adeleke, and Remy uh, does a bunch of incredible things. He was a former SEAL. Um, he has a, a unique life story to you know how he got to where he got. Uh, he's an author. Uh, he's an actor. He's a screenwriter. I mean, Remy's doing so many things. Uh, Remy, thank you for coming on here, brother. Yo, thank you for having me on, man. It's uh, it's been four years, brother. Four years, jeez. I said a year. Well, four years. That's crazy. Time flies. Time flies. But yo, thank you for having me on. It was a blessing last time, and I'm looking forward to today. Yeah, man. And I, I think I told you this before, um, but it's it's really inspiring to see like how much you're like just growing and doing all these awesome things. Um, and then in particular, you know. I'm not from the Bronx. I'm from Manhattan, but I live on the on the very tip of northern Manhattan, so the Bronx is right next to me. So, like, my whole life I've been in the Bronx, in and out of the Bronx for, for different things. Yeah. Um, so I, I always feel like, you know, like we kind of come from the same place, you know. And um, so it was really cool to have you on here last time. And just like I said, it's just phenomenal to see everything that you're doing. Like, um, so today your, your book, when this podcast comes out, your book will be published uh, your your newest book, uh, Chameleon, a black box thriller. Uh, there's an audio book. It's there's a hard cover. It's Kindle. Um, and and let me tell you something. I uh, back in the day, I read a bunch of the Vince Flynn books, like the Mitch Rap series. Um, I read uh, uh, Tom Clancy, like all those kind of books, like those thriller, you know, special ops, intel type books. And I was really impressed uh, reading your book. I'm not gonna lie. Thank you, man. Thank you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. it was uh, that's what I was going for. I was I wanted that gritty, authentic, but also something that read like what people are used to, uh, especially because the protagonist is you know this is the first African American protagonist 
But so I also wanted to get that feel of what, you know, what has come before with the grittiness and the authenticity and the cool action, but the espionage. So it's cool to hear the feedback from you and uh, and uh, the, you know, especially that you enjoyed it. Yeah. And the details are just like um, so I, I consume the audio version. So I'm, I'm, and it's also cool that you did the the uh, the audio version like you did it yourself. I know a lot of authors would rather have someone else read the book. Um, yeah. But just just listening to the details, like the the small details, I feel like are so important, and and that's just something that right away I picked it up because I you know in my life I've read a ton of books, um, yeah. and and good writing I feel has those details in it, and. Um, and it's just dope. And then there's a part where you um, where you talk about the characters, uh, an experience he had as a kid in Nigeria. And then right away, I was like, man, I wonder if that's an experience that you actually had in your real life. Um, so uh, overall, just an incredible read. And and I'm not just saying that because we're on here. Like I like that, that that was my genuine thoughts, you know, going through the book. You know. Yeah, you know what I what I try. It's it's. It's very loosely based off of me. The way I've been describing it lately is that it's a fictional extension of Transform. You know, so everybody who read Transform and loved that story and that journey, you know, I wasn't able to go down that the, the too much of the action pack one because I didn't have room. I spent so much talking about you know my life in Africa and the Bronx before I even got to the teens. Uh, before I even got to the Navy in general, that I didn't have the room, but this is where you get all the cool action and the espionage. Some of, what is, some of the stuff that I did as a human guy, but now it's an extension of Transform. You know, Kali is based off Remy and his actual full name, now that I'm on the, on the top of, uh, I hate to digress, but his full name is actually Khalif Browder Kent. Um, so that's, that's you, tough. You being from New York. Yeah. I, I already know who that is. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to pay homage to him because, you know, for those who don't know, Khalif Browder was a, uh, teenager. He was falsely accused of stealing a backpack, got sent to Rikers Island as a teenager. He was an adult, pretty much prison. And uh, tortured, abused, set, set, put in solitary confinement. If my memory serves me right, he was there for like uh, three years, and then they finally got released because they realized that he wasn't he wasn't the culprit. But he had been so traumatized that he ended up committing. It was a national news story. Yeah, um, but he ended up committing suicide. Uh, so uh, you know, in my mind, I was like, he grew up right down the street from me. You know, so I yeah. was like, you know, what would Khalif Browder become? What would he have become if what happened to him didn't happen? So it was like a little fantasy of mine, you know, to to kind of, you know, predict in a in, in a in a universe that doesn't exist, you know, Khalif's uh, fate, you know. But again, it's, it's still loosely based off of me. But the title character is uh, that name comes from Khalif Browder. Yeah, that's deep. Um, and and that's something I think, in particular, folks from New York are, are resonate with and, and know. Like once you, once you say the name, I already know the story. But you're right; it was a national story. Um, and and on top of that, like you said, he grew up down the street from you, so he's from the Bronx. You know, it's like a um, so that like that all that is so impactful. Um, 
And then, you know, the one thing that's interesting with the book, and it, it's why it kind of reminded me of those, you know, that Vince Flynn type uh, book, is because it, it, it has like the, the sort of special operations aspect, but it also has that intelligence aspect. And I know you have, that's basically your background because you were a SEAL, but you also did like uh, intel work as well. Um, so I, I, like, it's so cool to listen to a guy who's been there, done that. And then like your, your skills as a writer are like in, incredible. And like my mind was blown. I was like, I can't wait to actually tell him that. Um, so can we uh, just like give a, a like a quick sort of brief uh, background, uh, like if you can give your background just for people, you know, it's been a couple of years uh, for people who didn't listen to the first episode we did. Yeah. So um, uh, I was uh, born in Nigeria into a very wealthy family. My dad was a successful engineer, entrepreneur, philanthropist. He engineered one of the first man-made islands in the world. Uh, which exists to this day is now known as Banana Island, but it was known as Lagoon City. Uh, Nigerian government stripped my dad of that island uh, and all of our wealth was wrapped up in it. So when that happened uh, and then he died mysteriously three weeks later, we went from really, really rich to poor, having absolutely nothing. And my mom being an American, my mom and dad actually met in New York City got married and then my mom moved back to Nigeria with him. So my mom was an American and I was actually born an American abroad because my dad didn't want me to have Nigerian and American citizenship. He just wanted me to have American citizenship so that that way I'd be, I'd be able to take advantage of the opportunity to serve in special operations or in the agency or in some form of political office. Um, you know, because if you born with dual citizenship, you can't really get a clearance. Therefore, you can't go down that path. So he was a very forward thinking man. So we came to the States, grew up in the Bronx. Um, you know what it was like in the, in the 80s, late 80s, early 90s in the Bronx. It was wild. There was the crack epidemic. Yeah. Um, the mafia was very prevalent at the time. Um, prostitution murders, you know, you name it, it was happening in the Bronx, especially in the area that I grew up in. Uh, my mom taught in the South Bronx. I grew up in a week, but we lived in the West Bronx and not having a father and trying to find a father in the streets, uh, hip hop culture, street culture. I ended up, you know, doing some nefarious things, selling drugs, um, running, you know, high level cell phone fraud scams. And, uh, you know, built a massive legal enterprise by the time I was 19. Um, and then I started a record company called Eighth Wonder Entertainment at the time. And so I was laundering the money that I was making illegally through um, the record company. Um, ended up getting involved in a deal with a drug dealer that went bad, sold them some products that were supposed to last for a certain amount of time. Those products only lasted for a fraction of that time. My life was threatened. But it was a huge wake up call for me. I gave him his money back. And then that's when I decided I'm done with the hustling thing. Um, and then fast forward, this was a, that happened in December of 2001. Fast forward to June of 2002. That's when I decided to, you know, I need to get out of the Bronx. So I'm going to end up dead on prison. And so I uh, went to the Navy recruiter's office. Uh, recruiter ran my background, found that I had two warrants out for my arrest. Uh, she took me to both judges, judge in New Jersey, judge in New York, advocated on my behalf. Both judges expunged my record. She went a step further, fudged the paperwork to sneak me into the Navy. 
And then I got into the Navy, um, couldn't swim, didn't have the academic scores, and I was skinny, but I wanted to be a frogman. I was inspired by a film called The Rock, uh, which was my first exposure to the SEAL teams. And uh, and so I just I, once I made the decision that I was going to be a frogman, I went all in, uh, trained myself on how to swim, uh, got an ASVAP for book, Dummies book, studied that book to get my ASVAP scores up. And then I just worked out relentlessly and then uh, eventually got into SEAL training, eventually got through SEAL training, spent uh, 13 and a half years in the, in the military. The majority of that time was spent in the teams as a SEAL. Um, got, I, was a, I was a medic, but I was also, as you mentioned, I was a human guy, which stands for human intelligence. So I got to go to various intelligence schools in D.C. and other places and learn trade craft, source handling. And the cool thing was a lot of what I did in the Bronx translated, you know, I had to, I had to be a chameleon in the Bronx. And so, you know, I had to learn how to read people, especially selling drugs and doing the things I was, I was doing. You, you gotta be careful because if not, you end up selling to the wrong person and end up getting pinched or selling to the wrong person. And he could be a competition. You end up getting murdered. And so uh, all of the things that I learned in the streets of the Bronx translated really well into what I did as a human operator. And uh, that helped me do my job well. You know, I was, I lived best of both worlds. I got to build intelligence packages, which came from running sources and having sources collect intelligence for me, uh, and then vetting that intelligence against SIGIT and other forms of intelligence. And then I got to go kick down doors based off of that intelligence that was gathered, do direct action missions. And so uh, that was my career. Uh, you know, did uh, three deployments, uh, combat deployments, uh, and decided to get out in 2016. Uh, and, you know, I had a two, my two sons at that point and, uh, uh, you know, got out and uh, was getting my master's in organizational strategy. And then that's when I decided, hey, uh, you know, let me go into business consultant full time. But I got contacted to uh, work on a movie called Transformers. And that's what kind of started my Hollywood career. Yeah, such a fascinating story, man. Um, and and I think one of the things we t- we touched on in the, the first podcast we did was how like the being able to survive in the streets uh, is like a lot of those skills are transferable to intelligence work. Um, and like like just today, right? Like uh, you know, I went to the gym in the morning uh, in the Bronx, and um, but. Before I went to the gym, I stopped at one of my favorite coffee shops nearby, and uh, I, I walked past this dude who was sitting on the wall, and like he had like a, a nice BMW and double parked in the street. And if you just looked at this guy, you probably wouldn't think anything of him. Like he didn't have like you know he wasn't fit, he wasn't tall, just kind of normal stature. Uh, you know, didn't stand out. But what I noticed is when I turned the corner, he he kept his eyes on me the entire time. Uh, like it was only a couple seconds, but right away in my head, I was like, "This guy is from the streets, or he, he's in, he's involved, or he was involved in something." And he wasn't staring at me with like menace in his eyes, but it was just like he was watching me, and and that just like that alerted me that he wasn't just like a normal person, and um and and that's just from having grown up in the streets myself, um, not in the Bronx, but, you know, not far from the Bronx, right? And, um, and and I just think, you know, we spoke about it last time, like I said, all those things transfer. And I did a podcast a couple months ago, 
with a guy. He was a he ended up being a, a senior uh, intel guy at the CIA, and he's also from the Bronx. And and uh, again, another thing we spoke about is like the skills he had to learn to survive on the streets is what enabled him to conduct you know intel operations in all around the world in war zones and recruit people and and be successful at that and and one of the things that we spoke about was that he felt like a lot of some of the talent coming into the CIA cuz he he spent time um at the uh I guess they call it the farm or whatever where they you know recruits go through the school and learn the tradecraft and he said one of the issues that he felt he saw from his time there was that a lot of the folks coming through were from like affluent backgrounds and you know Ivy school Ivy League education and and there's no, he he wasn't saying it to to say that that's a bad thing but just that people like that don't don't have much experience with adversity obviously some people can uh you know not come from a poor background or anything and, and be excellent uh intelligence officers but uh he felt like the the folks that were sort of naturals were people who had already experienced adversity and knew how to survive uh, on their own and had those instincts before being taught anything involving uh, intelligence work. No, that's 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 spot on, man. And it's I, I had the same experience, man. Like when I went overseas initially, you have these, and you know it's the same thing in the SEAL teams. You get a lot of guys who come from from really you know, uh, affluent backgrounds. Um, and interestingly, you get a lot of guys who are, you know, they, they're in their mid, mid to late twenties. Some guys, even their early, early thirties, they had careers as lawyers or investment bankers or, you know, uh, you know, business executives and they decided I want to be a seal. And so they come into the community, you know, with that back and they come in as enlisted. These are not guys that are, wanting to become officers. These are guys who are coming in enlisted. And so interestingly, um, that's who you end up serving with. And when they go overseas, especially getting into the human side of things, there's this connection. And I don't mean this in a bad way, but there's this connection that's not there with the sources. They still get the job done. They still get the intel, but there's a connection that's not there that makes it a bit harder to get the intel or uh, less smoother. Whereas when I would come in, you know, into these rooms, I already was able to read them really quick because of my upbringing and figure out a little bit faster, a little bit smoother, or figure out a different approach to converse with them because there's that street connection that I had, you know? So uh, that's spot on. Yeah, I mean, and like humans are just like, we may be different in in many ways, but we're the same also, right? Like people who are trying to survive all around the world have similar um, instincts, you know, similar thought processes. And and really when you're, if you're doing intelligence work, one of the main, I guess, skill sets that you need to have is being able to adapt. Uh, And it's, you know, it's the same thing on, you know, trying to survive in a in an environment like New York in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, where, you know, people are getting killed all the time or they're getting, you know, badly wounded or whatever it may be. Um, okay, so, uh, so then, okay, so you did the movie Transformers. 
um, and then and that's like your first sort of into that industry. Uh, but what got you into actually writing? Like, um, I know you did some uh, screenwriting and stuff like that. Like, how did you get into that part of it? Yeah, so you know, after I wrote my book, Transform, that came out. Um, I had the idea for Chameleon. I, Chameleon had been in my head for like, man, for like 10 years at this point. And I, I, I didn't want to do it as a book. I wanted to do it as a film. And so that was the first screen write, screenplay that I wrote. I, I went on YouTube and, and just, you know, watched, I, I would watch YouTube videos on screenwriting, character art, three-act structure, formatting, all that stuff. And then I uh, bought the uh, subscription for the masterclass. Uh, oh, nice. I, I still have it to this day. I, I kept it, but... You know, I did the Aaron Sorkin masterclass on screenwriting, David Mamet, uh, Shonda Rhimes. I did all these different um, uh, screenwriting classes on on that. And then that's what essentially informed me. And and so and, and Chameleon was the first script that I wrote. And when I would get I would get more jobs to consult. So as I was writing Chameleon, I would also take jobs to consult on films like big films and TV shows. And um, interestingly, the first thing that would happen when I was pitched, when I was pitched was the producer or director would send me the script and I would read these scripts and I would just be like, dang, I know I could do so much more better than this. Um, So, you know, after I wrote Chameleon, I wrote another screenplay called The Last Shall Be First, which is a true story about the first group of African-Americans to serve as special operations. And then... Uh, and then I wrote another script. Uh, Why? Well, then I got hired uh, by uh, actually the uh, producers of Sound of Freedom. They read the Lash Lash I'll Be First, and they were like, "Yo, hey, Tim Ballard has a book called Slave Stealers. You know, it's about this uh, slave back in the uh, in the in the 1800s who was a spy, and it's a true story. And she was able to rescue other people out of uh, slavery doing trade craft and other crazy stuff." And so I read that book and I and I got hired to adapt that. But that was a project that got me into the Writers Guild of America. But um, um, I, I got hired to adapt that book into a limited series. And then, you know, I just kept on writing from there. So that was my progression. And then um, about uh, two years or maybe a year and a half after I finished Chameleon, um, uh, my agent took it out to different uh, production companies and we got three offers. And one of the offers was from um, uh, a really big producer. I can't mention his name in this production company, uh, but I went through a year of rewrites on Chameleon. And after I went through that year of rewrites uh, and got it to where the producer wanted the script to be, he started looking for directors to attach. And the process was really hard because you know, there's only but so many directors in Hollywood that the studios would trust with an $80 million, $90 million budget to film. And so it became a thing where we kept on getting no's because it's like one director was like, oh, I'm working on this other project. I'm working on this, another director, I'm working on this project for the next three, four years. And it was around that time where I said, you know, I'm tired of this. I put in all this work writing a screenplay initially, then I put in a year of work doing rewrites and now I'm trying to chase directors. That's when I was like, screw it. I'm going to teach myself how to direct. 
And, uh, and, 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 and so I taught myself how to direct, just like I taught myself screenwriting. And then as I would take these other jobs to consult and act on films, like playing and, and uh, ambulance and all of this other stuff, that's when I was like, you know what, I'm going to make that my film school. So instead of just going in and doing a job, I'm going to go in and learn from these directors. And then that was so that was my progression. It went from writing the book, getting confidence as a storyteller there, writing the screen, uh, learning how to write screenplays, growing in that process of writing screenplays and writing more screenplays and then teaching myself directing. And that's where I'm at now as a, you know, full time writer director, you know, along with being an author. Yeah, no, it, it's it's honestly impressive to to see like this level of growth from you. Where it's like you you just keep doing and doing and doing and and doing all that while like juggling having a family, you know, wife and kids and all that. It's it's really impressive. Um, and then, so you also did a show. Um, I, I think it was called Special Forces. Uh, was it on Fox or? Yeah, yeah, special forces Fox. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. So I, so I think Rudy Reyes was on there. He was a, a recon marine, right? And then uh, I did a podcast with Foxy a couple of years ago. Uh, he was a British uh, special forces guy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we, and I think he was the first podcast I did in person. Uh, he was in New York for for some some business thing he was doing. And uh, and we met up and, and recorded a podcast and and uh, you know he has a a remarkable story as well. So what was that experience like working on on that show? That was cool, man. I mean, by like you know Billy Foxy Rudy, they're all great dudes, man. So you know it's always good to just you know work with good people, especially like-minded people, and 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 it was a phenomenal experience. You know the uh, producers in the studios, they really hand us the handed us the reins and said, hey. We want the show to be authentic and real and hard hitting. So, hey, you create your course and run them through it. Uh, take the gloves off. And uh, so that was fun being able to really put celebrities through the ringer. And it was impressive also to see how far some of them got because we weren't expecting a lot of them to get that far, to be honest with you. And they just kept showing up day after day after day. So it was a cool experience. We shot it in Jordan. Um, the King of Jordan was, is a cool dude. He was super supportive. He's a special operations guy as well. And, uh, so he would always, you know, come by and offer his help and, you know, Hey, you want to use our helicopters? You want to use this? You want to use that? That's awesome. And so we had the support of not just the people of Jordan, but the King of Jordan, man. So, um, it was definitely a fun show to work on. I'm not coming back. I'm not doing season two, but I know that they already shot season two. And uh, I got another show that I'm going to be doing. I can't go into detail about it yet, but it's, it's going to be really, really epic, man. Um, and it's going to be, I think, on the, I can't I can't name the studio yet, but it's going to be epic. And it's and that's all I can say right now. <laughs> can you say, like, would it be this year or next year? Can you talk about that or? Yeah, yeah we should start shooting it next month. Oh, dope. OK, OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's going to end up looking to have the first episodes release. Uh, on uh, Veterans Day. Oh, that's dope. Okay. Yeah, Yeah, so the show is cool because there's been different sort of iterations of that kind of show. Um, I think it it probably started in the UK, I want to say. And then there was like an American version. Um, 
So there's a couple things I wanted to ask you. So when you guys filmed it, were you in Wadi Rum? Yep, yep, we were Wadi Rum. Yeah, so I, I actually been to Wadi Rum before, um, and so I, I'm also a photographer, and uh, anyone who knows anything about photography, if uh, there's a form of photography that is really cool, it's called astrophotography, but to, in, in order to capture the, the Milky Way and the stars, you need to be in a place that's really dark at night, and it's sort of away from light pollution, so Wadi Rum is actually perfect for that, and um, so when I went to Wadi Rum, uh, I think two or three of the nights that I was there, I ended up staying up till like two, three in the morning uh, to catch the the Milky Way and all that, and it was just a, an amazing experience because it's like really dark in the desert. Um, the desert itself is kind of unique. Um, like the, the sand is really red. Uh, there's they have like sand dunes level sand that's really soft um, and it's just a, a unique sort of landscape and probably one of the most unique landscapes in the world um, so that was a dope experience how long were you guys out there yeah it's beautiful out there we were well well to back up a little bit we um i was part of the uk season so i did we did the uk season and let's see we in october 2020 let's see two is when we filmed october uh, 2021 um, of October, we shot the uh, UK series. That was my first season. I did a, a okay. the, uh, the celebrity season, and I also did the um, the civilian season. And then, and then the show got picked up. And after it got picked up um, uh, for the US version, we went back out there. So we were out there the first time for like almost two, almost like a month and a half. And then the second time, we were out there for like a month. Oh, dope. Okay. Okay. And so from what, what I know about Wadi Rum, it's like there's a bunch of different sort of like resort type places where people stay. Um, was that like your situation where you guys like staying in one sort of location or, or did you go like, did the whole like film sort of set up, take over a spot and that's where you guys stayed? Yeah. So we like before we started filming, like because we have like the pre-production part where we practicing all the stuff and and uh just doing our recon um we're, we're staying in like the wadi rum kind of hotels you know kind of like space capsules they almost look like yeah it's dope they, yeah they look like uh you know uh i don't know like alien bases or whatever and then after once we go we start filming there's like an actual that camp that you saw on the show we film on that camp so it's like we, we don't leave like the recruits live in a tent, like a big tent, 20 person tent. And then we are literally right across from the parade square in our little quarters, which we're roughing it, brother. We're out there. We're sleeping on pretty much cots and, you know, wake up with sand and dirt all covered. On, you know, <laughs> sand. So, yeah, man, it, it, it yeah. we But that's like right smack dab in the middle of Wadi Rum. No AC, no nothing, man. It was Oof. brutal. Man, that's brutal. Cause when I went, so when I went there, I was I spent a couple of days in Israel, and then uh, I, I booked the trip into Jordan through a, a tour company. So they drive you to uh, to uh, I think on the Israeli side, it's it's uh, the town is Elat. Okay. And uh, and I'm forgetting the name of the town on uh, on the Jordanian side. I forget, but they so right there is a, it's a border crossing. 
So the Israeli tour company drops you off, you you get picked up by the Jordanian company, and then they take you uh, wherever the itinerary is. And, uh, and we went to this spot in... Uh, and then the Red Sea is right there, so that's kind of cool for anyone who's like religious or into history. There's a lot of history in that part of the world. And... Um, Oh, the name of the the, the Jordanian side is Aqaba. That's the town in Jordan. Yeah, yeah. Aqaba. Yep, yep. We yeah. filmed down in Aqaba. It was beautiful. As a matter of fact, yeah, this, yeah. The king of Jordan invited me and my wife out um, in September of last year, 2022, and uh, we went out and uh, in November, and it, all expense paid trip. And Dope. so we got to explore more of Aqaba. And bro, it is gorgeous out there, dude. Yeah. It is absolutely breathtaking. It's like it was like San Diego. We were staying at this hotel that was like right on um uh that was like right on the uh uh the, the Red Sea? Yeah, it was right on the Red Sea, but it was like these uh like this dock with all of these freaking massive yachts, you know, and so it was gorgeous. But yeah, man, I uh uh it's beautiful down there. And and you're right, it's like almost like a horseshoe because you got Egypt. Yeah, Saudi uh, Arabia, Israel, Egypt, Egypt, Israel, uh, Jordan, and then Saudi. So it's like all right there in a horseshoe. Yeah, and the, and kind of surprisingly, the the water is pretty clear, um, at least from what I remember. Like we, I didn't go in the water, but we kind of passed by like uh, along the, the shoreline there, and the water looked very clear. So I thought that was kind of cool. Um, so then from Aqaba, we went into Wadi Rum and. Uh, and then we, it's kind of like this, like, it's like a camp set up. There's a bunch of tents. There's a, you know, they have like a, a kitchen. They had a pool. Like it was a cool setup. And, um, but from what I had booked, it, it gave me this room. I was in like a little group of like 12 people. And it was mostly, I think like Europeans. And so we stayed with this group of people for like three, four nights. And, you know, so you get to know people, you're talking people from different parts of Europe and stuff and, or, um, different parts of the world really and uh when we get to check in uh you know they show me to my tent essentially and it was just a tent with like a fan i'm like bro there's no fucking way i can sleep in this 105 you know 110 degree weather with just a fan so i had to like upgrade to get to uh they had like these like small structures and they had like ac in there i was like i don't care what it costs like i i can't sleep in the in the desert with a fan you know yeah, 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 yeah. Like, all you getting is you getting dirt blown on you, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so then the the other question I had was, um, obviously, there's a lot of similarities between uh, the American military and the British, but of course there's differences, um, uh, you know, in how things are done. There's probably a slight difference in culture, uh, and particularly in the special forces side of it. Um, so when... It's like you and Rudy Reyes were like the Americans on the show with the spe special ops experience. And then you had Foxy and, and some of the other guys um, with the British special forces experience. What was it like sort of coming up with a course uh, or, you know, setting up how you're going to run people through different things? Like, did you find that the way you guys thought and did things was similar or was it different? How was that like? I was all similar, man. It was all similar. The only thing that was different was the terminology. <laughs> like, you know, we call them rucks, they call them bergens. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Remember on the UK version, like, I, 
like the the recruits would get in trouble for calling it a backpack or a bug and uh, you know a book bag or whatever the case may be. And Billy was screaming, "It's a Bergen! Call it a Bergen!" Right. <laughs> so so it it took me some time to you know adjust to that. And then when we came to the U.S. version, you know they were like, "All right, this is America, so you know we can use both." But then they were like calling it a Bergen, and the recruits were like, "What's a Bergen?" Like, I was like, "Hey, it's a rut." So when it came to um uh you know the course. And working out the details, it was all the same. It was all really similar. In fact, you know, from what I understand, there are, our special operations roots come from SAS. You know, yeah. a lot of the stuff that we do and a lot of the things that we learn and even in our selection courses, you know, comes from, you know, the SAS and what they did and, you know, what they've been doing for a number of years. And even going back to the OSS and what they learned from um their the British counterparts during World War II. So, you know, the vetting process for the most part is somewhat the same. You know, you put put guys through the ringer and whoever comes out on the other end, you know, gets to um, serve in the community. And so, um, yeah, it was all really similar. We never butted heads. We were never like, well, this is the way things are done here. This is just the only hang up for the most part was just terminology, you know, what, what we call certain things. But at the same time, but at the end of the day, it was still the same action, if that makes sense. Okay, yeah, that's, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, obviously the um, the roots of, like, like U.S. Special Operations has, you know, they can trace their roots, like, back to, like, the, the uh, Revolutionary War and, and all that. Um, but, and there were, U.S. had special sort of operations-type, Troops and and uh, you know with the OSS and which eventually became the CIA after the war, um, but like the concept of like counterterrorism type stuff, um, the Brits really sort of invented that. And then um, you know the SAS SBS and the SBS is, it would be like the British equivalent of, of Navy SEALs, um, and then like. The, the American Tier 1 units, Delta Force, SEAL Team 6, uh, if I can recall correctly, the SAS and the SBS sent guys over to the U.S. to help set up the units and the selection and all that. Um, yeah, so so that, that's pretty cool. So then, uh, you know, you also, uh, you, you have a film on uh, organ harvesting. Uh, can we talk about, like, the film specifically and then like what the issue is or, or like you know what organ harvesting is and what that looks like experts say that china is hoarding a massive amount of food they will soon have over two-thirds of the globe's corn reserves and over half of its rice and over half of its wheat but when asked about it china lies one china expert says that they of course will never admit to something like that well what does china know that we don't when it comes to global food shortages, China is the canary in the coal mine. You see, China is the world's number one importer of food. They rely on the rest of the world to keep their people fed. So they can't afford to mess up or there will be riots, civil panic, or even worse, over a billion people won't have food to eat. What does this mean for Americans like you and me? Two words, food shortages. That's why it's a smart idea to stock up on a kit of the best-selling Four Patriots survival food. Create your own stockpile of the best-selling Four Patriots survival food kits. It's hand-picked in the USA. The kits are compact and they stack easily. 
They have different delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, and their five-star reviews on their website rave about the flavor and taste. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase of 4Patriots Survival Food by typing in the code RECON at checkout. Just go to 4Patriots.com and use RECON to get 10% off your first purchase of 4Patriots Survival Food. That's 4Patriots.com. Use the code RECON. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, you know, um, human trafficking, when people hear the term human trafficking, they automatically, their brain automatically goes to sex trafficking. But human trafficking is a blanket term. There's so many different subsets of human trafficking. You got sex trafficking, you got uh, um, labor trafficking, you got forced marriage, you have blood trafficking, and you have organ harvesting, uh, where people are essentially taken some by force, some manipulated, um, some tricked, uh, and some who are just so desperate that they're willing to uh, essentially sell their organ on the black market to, uh, you know, uh, get into another country or to get some funds for for their next meal. Um, so it's uh, it, organ harvesting is just one of those topics that's really hard to to uh, pin down as far as how to discuss it. And, um, and, you know, I, when I got out of the military, I, the crazy thing was I had a lot of nonprofits that reach, would reach out to me over the course of the years and, and ask me to come volunteer with them in, in different capacities. And one of the type of nonprofits that I kept on getting contacted by, uh, was human trafficking nonprofits. And so uh, that was when I kind of got involved. And then the more I got involved, the more I was just like, wow, this is such a global issue. And because it's a global issue, it requires a global response. So that was when I decided to make the organ harvesting film um, and, and really focusing on actual events. You know, there's uh, there was a genocide that took place <clears throat> Uh, the ISIS carried out a genocide against the Yazidis people. And uh, a lot of people don't know that story. They don't, I mean, it was just, uh, I want to say about six or seven years ago, the UN finally recognized it as a genocide, what had happened to them. And uh, a lot of people don't know that the, the that there was a lot of human trafficking that was involved in that. You know, the men were slaughtered for the most part. Uh, boys were turned into suicide bombers and, 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 and trafficked in other various ways. Girls were used for sex trafficking and then organ harvesting was a part of it as well. Uh, and so uh, because a lot, of, no one really knew about it. Uh, no one really knows about organ, not no one, but a lot of people don't know about organ harvesting. And because a lot of people don't know about what happened to the Yazidis as it relates to organ harvesting, I decided to focus my story in on that and essentially break down how an organ harvesting ring operates and how intricate they are. Um, when people think of traffickers, they, I, I would assume that the first thought that comes to mind are unintelligent, not intelligent, um, scraggly looking, you know, dirty people. But in reality, a lot of these traffickers are very, very sophisticated, very educated. And their their network is, 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 is also sophisticated. And their operations are also very professional and top notch. Uh, in fact, uh, Cairo, Egypt is considered one of the organ harvesting capitals of the world. And there was a, a, a organ harvesting ring that was busted in 2016. And of the 60 people that were arrested, 45 of them were doctors and nurses, um, wow. and, which makes sense because you can't pull some idiot off the street to cut out a heart that's going to be able to be preserved and sold on the black market. And so um, a lot of these people that are involved in these organ harvesting, 
investing rates are very sophisticated, well-funded, well-educated people. And so uh, that was another aspect of the film that I wanted to uh, portray was just how detailed and, 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 and smart. I mean, it's almost run like a freaking government agency you know the, the secrecy the the you know the dead drops the uh uh the cover names all of these different the funds that are used and how money is moved is almost run in a very clandestine uh sophisticated way so that's what the film is uh focuses on the unexpected yeah that's crazy stuff um it, it's so crazy so so basically the um you know like with any crime with human trafficking, uh, it exists because there are customers, right? Like, just like like the drug war in the U.S., right? Like, you can you can go after people selling drugs on the streets, but as long as there's a demand for it, like, there's always going to be a you know a way to, to to a network to sort of sell that, right? So, so what does the demand side look like? Like, like what are people like trying to accomplish are these people who are sick in like wealthy countries like what's that like yeah yeah so essentially 4,000 Americans die every year uh, uh, waiting for a new kidney um, and uh, and so that's just just to put things into perspective that people don't want to die most most people don't want to die right so um, uh, so we America drives a lot of the demand but the demand is not just from America, I mean, it's from all around the world. There are people all around the world who are in need of a kidney or a heart or a lung or fill in the blank. And if they don't get that organ, they're going to die. Um, and uh, and so it's 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 um, the demand will never ever go away until there are human beings being born. The demand will never ever go away. Um, there was actually a story out of. Uh, uh, Costa Rica recently, where a uh, uh, a surgeon, an Israeli surgeon, uh, was brokering kidney deals in Costa Rica. So if somebody in Israel couldn't get a kidney in time and they needed a kidney or they were going to die, they would be connected with this doctor. He would find a, a he would manipulate a poor Costa Rican, and then he was just running a whole gambit as far as it, as it relates to a, a kidney transplant. So the demand is not just in America, the demand is worldwide because there's always people who who will uh, need organs and there's going to always be uh, a lot of people who are not able to give those organs and, and especially give those organs in a time that's necessary. Uh, in fact, the short film focuses on an American family uh, with a son that needed a heart transplant. And, uh, and so they were essentially contacted or introduced to a nefarious group in that group, but which they didn't know that the group was a fair nefarious and that group was able to find a match. And I say that in air quotes and, but it was all done on a black market. And also another thing that happens is some of these families, you got to remember they, they're not aware of, of, of where some of these organs come from. Um, they, they, they have no idea. And, and, and maybe in the beginning they get, pitched 
And I'm talking about more on the black market side. I'm not talking about, you know, the person that gets in a car accident and, 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 you know, is brain dead and then their family decides to donate their organs. I'm talking about the black market side of things, you know, the way it's pitched. So for example, let me just back up for a second. Social media is, is, is where a lot of organs are being bought and sold. And a lot of people are being connected, right. Through social media and introduced. Um, there was a, there was a uh, recent report that came out about Facebook and Instagram and how, you know, Facebook and Instagram is facilitating facilitating a lot of human trafficking uh, because people are able to create fake accounts and and use the DM section and communicate with other people and search hashtags, right? So you'll get somebody who's sick or have a child has a child that's sick and they'll just post a picture innocently. Oh, my daughter's on her way to her dialysis. It's been a tough day, but please pray for her. And they'll put hashtag dialysis, hashtag, you know, uh, 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 caregiver, hashtag all of these different things. And that's how traffickers are finding their clients. Uh, and then, Ooh, you know, that's crazy. Yeah. That particular person who put that hashtag, they get a message on, on Instagram one day that says, Hey, I saw that you, uh, uh, have a child that's in need of a, a kidney. I know this 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 program that you can put your name in, and you could potentially your child could get bumped up to a on a list and get a kidney. It all seems like it's on the up and up. A lot of these organ harvesting rings, they have websites and back and all kinds of stuff, you know. And that's a whole other story. I got a whole story to tell about uh, this Nigerian engineer in India that was essentially brokering or, uh, organ harvesting deals via a website that when you went to the website, it all looked like it was on the up and up and good to go. But essentially, it was very nefarious on the back end. And so, jumping back to this particular example. Um, that 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 the, the, the person will get this message from an, from an Instagram account. They'll check the Instagram account. Everything looks like it's right and, and clean. They'll go to the website. Everything like so. They say, "Hey, sign me up," and I'll start going through the process. And then, like you know, three weeks in, they'll be like, "Ah, oh, sorry, we got to drop you off the list, X, Y, and Z." But we have somebody you know last minute who'll be able to possibly donate an organ tomorrow and and TJ or in DR or not tomorrow, but in a week or here and there. And then now the gambit has gradually shifted. And because the potential client has already been bought in and, and I say vetted in air quotes, vetted this particular agency, they, they feel comfortable to be like, Oh, okay, cool. I'll just take that option. And then they spend X amount of dollars and they say, Hey, it's going to cost you 5,000 or whatever the fees going to be. They spend that money. That kid goes down, gets a new organ, and now, you know, uh, they're not asking questions. You know, so it's, it's and I know I kind of ran through it and chopped it up, but that's, that's, that's the way these people work. It's a very sophisticated gambit. There's a story, uh, and, and the cool thing is there's a lot of more stories that, are, I don't mean that cool thing in a good way, but there are a lot more stories coming out. There's a story a few months ago about this American woman who was, who found love on TikTok. She went down to Columbia, was dating this guy. She disappeared. Come to find out, uh, this guy had chopped her up and was selling her organs either on TikTok or on social media. Jeez. That's how he got caught. Yeah, it was, a, it was an international news story. And they found her body, some of her body parts washed up on the beach in Columbia. And, uh, and he, here you go, he just, he was, he was a med school student 
And he was part of his organ harvesting ring, and he was just trying to get this healthy woman down there. She was desperate for a relationship. She goes down there and dates this guy. He, you know, he kills her and sells her organs on the black market. So uh, it's a very intricate gambit that is that is uh, being run, and it's very lucrative. In fact, organ harvesting is more lucrative and less risky than sex trafficking uh, because the average the the heart and lungs start just bidding starts at around $130,000 on a black market. Wow. Uh, uh, a liver or kidney, my memory serves me right, starts somewhere between fifty dollars and $70,000 on the black market. And cornea of the eye started $30,000 on the black market. So you get a whole person, a whole person, you know, conservatively, we could say is, is valued at somewhere around $500,000. That's just being conservative. That's where bidding starts. Right. So so it's very lucrative and it's less risky because, you know, somewhere around like six thousand just in America, six thousand kids every year disappears. Right. And so, you know, take that number and then you expand that around the world and and, uh, people disappear all the time. And so you can get these 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 nefarious figures who, you know, who run these organ harvesting rings, they find somebody and. They get their organs, burn the body. Nobody thinks anything of it, you know. And uh, and that was another thing that I really wanted to focus on on a, on an organ harvesting film that I make. When 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 people see it, what they'll see is, you know, I, I had people watching. They're like, ah, this doesn't make sense because why wouldn't um, the traffickers uh, get a victim in their in their country or in their state? Because it's easier to make somebody disappear when they're coming from a com- the other side of the globe, they show up in this state or country and then, you know, they disappear in that state or country, right? Their family and friends who are, you know, let's say they're from, you know, Congo or from the, uh, uh, from Iraq or from wherever, like Dubai or wherever, they're not going to know to look in Venezuela for their family member. Right. And then that person, the body bones turn up, burnt ashes turn up, burn up in the particular in Venezuela. And that person is from Middle East. Nobody's going to be able to trace that person all the way back to the Middle East. So it's a very intricate racket and uh, it's very lucrative and it's, it's less risky for traffickers than sex trafficking, especially with Interpol, especially especially with a lot of the federal laws uh, that are being created, not just in America, but all around the world. Uh, it's uh, it's a gambit, man. Man, that is crazy shit. And um, uh, th- there was a while ago. It's slightly unrelated, but I, I watched this. Uh, it was like a documentary series put out by a former detective in the U.S. And basically, um, it was about like national parks in the U.S. and how like every year a certain number of people go missing. And um, and I, I, it was a while ago that I watched it, but he concluded, if I can recall correctly, that some of these people, some people maybe, you know, they're hiking and they just like fall down a ravine or something and they just, you know, no one knows where they're at and, and stuff like that happens or maybe they get eaten by a bear, you know, something like that. But then there's also scenarios where he believes like people are being kidnapped or maybe murdered or, you know, put into some kind of crazy, you know, whatever, uh, sex trafficking, organ, organ harvesting type situation. But uh, in particular in the U.S., when someone is listed as missing, it's different from an investigative point of view 
as if as opposed to someone being, you know, if they find a body and they say, oh, this person was murdered, we're going to open a murder investigation. Um, so if people are listed as missing, it's a slightly different approach from local or, or federal law uh, enforcement. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. 100%. And then uh, you can't, you can't, from what I remember, you can't bring charges against somebody uh, if, they, if you believe that they have played a role in a, a missing case, right? Yeah. You have, you, the, the person had, the missing person has to be found dead. Yeah, that's yeah. crazy stuff. So if if someone wants, uh, anyone listening wants to watch this film, where can they do that? And they can watch it on YouTube. Yep. Okay. It's right on YouTube and it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, free. You don't have to, all you got to do is just type in The Unexpected uh, and uh, uh, Organ Harvesting or just The Unexpected and, uh, and more human and it'll all pop up. Yeah. And that, and that, and, and that film, it, 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 it did so well critically that it got picked up to be a feature film. So um, before the writer strike and actor strike, you know, we we were casting. We've already got financing, and it's it's going to be a big budgeted, uh, not big, but a thirty-five million dollar budgeted action thriller. And uh, we got some big names that are going to be attached, playing some roles in there. And and we're going to be just like with Sound of Freedom, we're going to be able to get the word out there about this this tragedy, this global issue. Um, and, and uh, we're going to be able to get the word out there in a bigger way through the film. Oh, that's dope. Yeah, I, I've been seeing in the news uh, stuff about, like, this writer strike and stuff that's going on. Can you explain some of that? Yeah, so uh, uh, the writer strike started May 2nd of 2000, of this year, and uh, it was because, you know, we went to, I'm, I'm part of the uh, WGA America, of America, which is the Writers Guild of America, and that's the union that uh, governs all screenwriters and, and TV writers as well. Uh, and, uh, and so we were, every few years, we go back to the negotiating table with all the studios. There's a, 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 a organization called the AMPTP, which represents all the studios and all the streamers, and they negotiate uh, with the uh, WGA, DGA, and, and SAG. Uh, which essentially govern all the filmmakers and actors in in the business, and uh, and so we went back to the negotiating table because our contract was up uh, uh, in in uh, in May and negotiated. Uh, you know, one of the issues that is the same issue that we're having with um, the with SAG because I'm part of both unions is uh, residual. So um, with network TV, um, when you act or write it for network TV, uh, you get paid every time it airs. You get a paycheck. Um, you know, for example, when I worked on SEAL Team, uh, you know, I got, it was time when I'd go check my mailbox and there'd be a check for $4,000 or a check for $3,000 or a check for $2,000, right? Um, uh, and, and so, uh, but with streaming, it's not that. With streaming, because they don't, they don't tell what they say what their numbers are. Uh, they they just give you like a pretty much a floor number. Uh, so for example, there was a, a writer who wrote for network TV, and her first residual check, you know, uh, for that network TV show was uh, four thousand um, dollars. Then that person she went to go write for a streamer, and her first residual check was four hundred dollars. So that's the difference in money. And the streamers are making billions of dollars, 
Um, and they're saying, well, we can't, but they're saying we can't afford to pay more. So a big part of our strife with the WGA was residuals getting paid, you know, not, not above and beyond, but getting paid fairly residual wise. But then also AI is a big part of it. Um, the studios and streamers want to have, be able to use AI for, on the writing side. They want to use AI to uh, generate screenplays. Uh, and then um, they can just have their executive who's already on staff or an assistant at the studio who's already on staff polish a screenplay. And now they save themselves, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars uh, by not hiring a WGA writer just to kind of help put this into more of a perspective. Um, before the writer's strike, I was in negotiations with a major studio because um, they bought my life rights my book rights for transform and hired me to write the screenplay when it was all said and done. I mean, I'm looking at close to a million dollar deal. Uh, uh, that deal would not exist. Uh, if the, if the studio was able to just hire a, uh, uh, not hire, but use, utilize an AI software technology and say, hey, here's Remy's book. Here's a story. You know, here's a story. Generate a 120 page or 130 page script. Right. So um, so essentially AI is looking that the studios are looking to use AI to replace writers. And uh, and 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 so, you know, we, we can't go for that. So that so in uh, the studios, when we brought it up in negotiations, they said AI is not even up for discussion. We're not even going to go there. We're going to we're not even going to go there. We, we're going to use it as, as we see fit. So um, that was why we went on strike. And then fast forward. And then after the WGA negotiated with the AMPTP, uh, then they went to go negotiate with the DGA, which is the Directors Guild of America. They govern all directors, Hollywood directors. And uh, DGA said, hey, you guys can't use AI. And they said, all right, we won't use AI. Uh, because they know that, you know, regardless of, uh, of, of whether you use AI for a, as a screenwriter or, or as a uh, actor, uh, you use that technology for actors, you're going to always need a director. You, AI, AI cannot, you know, direct at all. And so because it was like, oh, we, we can never use AI technology to replace a director anyway. So let's 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 take this off the uh, off. The, they don't want it. Uh, they, they don't want uh, AI to be involved in, in their job as directors Then we won't allow that to happen. But then when we went back to SAG, when the SAG negotiations started after the DGA finished their deal, it was the same issues that we brought that the SAG brought up. Hey, we want proper residuals as it relates to streaming. Um, and we want our adjustments to be based off of inflation. But also we want to make sure that AI technology is not used for to replace actors. And uh, the uh, AMPTP said, no, we want to be able to hire an actor for one day, scan their image and likeness, put it into a computer and then we'll pay them for that one day. But we own, we could utilize that person's uh, uh, image and likeness forever for, for until the end of time. And uh, so that's, that's crazy. Why, yeah, that's why the strikes are happening. That's so, you know, it's so crazy because, you know, obviously in the last year or so, like the AI is really picking up um, like with like, you know, most famously like chat GPT and stuff like that. Um, and I guess people are using it like mainly for writing and, and uh, things like that. But to think that the studios would say, you know, we're just going to cut out a huge part of the, the process of filmmaking and, and writing and, 
and shows and scripts and all that using computers is just insane. Like, uh, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, we, we've already seen it with uh, deepfake technology, you know, um, to be, where they could just use AI technology. I mean, it, it's going to happen at some. I mean, they, they can already do it now. Where they can use it. And I, I saw a Twitter post a couple of days ago where um, uh, a guy put this AI, some 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 um, story beats into an AI software, and it made a movie. And the movie doesn't look; it's not cartoony. The movie looks like it's real people, and it looks like like real animals. Like it, 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 it like it looks real. That's and, crazy. And and that movie was made. Not on a studio, not not on a set, not on location. It was generated by AI technology on a computer. No cameras were used. The AI technology just made the movie. It was a short film, right? But if you see it, you're going to be like, oh, crap, that's a movie. Oh, those, these are actual people. They're not human beings. So, man, that's scary. That's kind of scary if you think about it. That's crazy. Yeah, man, it's nuts. It's nuts. It's just it's insane because like the the studios know that if they go in that direction they're just gonna cut off an entire industry. It's uh, that's just a crazy idea. I feel, but yeah. But you gotta remember these these people at the top who are making hundreds of millions of dollars and they wanna they wanna make more. How can we make more? We cut out the people that we can cut out and uh, pay them less money so we can make more. That's what it all boils down to. And and you know that, it, you know if, if I have a criticism of, of the way the mentality like the business mentality in the, in the West or in the U.S. in particular, that would be it, right? Like you would think these like ultra wealthy people, uh, they make so much money and like they're still thinking of ways on how to like make more, but in a way that pushes other people out and and cuts off an entire industry and and like revenue stream for people who are feeding their families and stuff. It's just insane. Yeah, 100%. 100%. As a matter of fact, an article came out on uh, Deadline a uh, couple uh, earlier this week, and essentially it said that the uh, the, the, uh, the uh, reporter spoke to some anonymous executives uh, at the studios, and they said, hey, our goal is to starve the writers. We want them to stay on strike until until uh, they lose their houses, they, they can't pay their rent, and then, uh, and then at that point, we'll come to them with our deal that we want them to sign so that that way they can make less money, they can have lost months of money and then have to agree to less money for the next four or five years. And then on top of that, we could start the process of repla replacing them with AI technology. So it's all strategy for them. Man, that's that's crazy. Um, so so basically, uh, you know, as the strike is happening now, does that stop any production of film or and and uh, and and like TV and stuff like that? All film, all pro TV production has stopped. The only thing that could be made right now is reality TV because reality TV doesn't fall under SAG or the WGA. So you're about you're going to get start getting a lot more reality TV over the next few months. <laughs> That's crazy. So so SAG is the Screen Actors Guild. Yep, SAG is the Screen Actors Guild of America, and the WGA is the Writers Guild of America. And so basically, like all or the either the majority or all of like screenwriting and production falls under under that. Yeah, uh, yeah. All screenwriting falls under the WGA. 
and so all writing and then all acting uh, and uh, falls under SAG. And that, that includes uh, voice acting as well, uh, audio books, and, uh, uh, um, and even some newscasters fall under SAG as well. Man, that is crazy. Like, and it's just like AI is still not fully developed and advanced, and it's already causing some issues, right? Like, uh, you know, I can't imagine like when, when like the deep fake type technology gets better, like that's going to change everything. Oh yeah, one hundred percent. I think there was it wasn't there a story that came out recently where um, a girl was deep faked and she like on a porn out porno or something like that and then she lost her college um her college scholarship and all that and just lost some bunch of other stuff that's crazy it's her man that's crazy yeah yeah shit okay so um all right so let's switch gears a little bit so um you know your your first book is called transformed um you know, phenomenal book. Uh, you know, has a bunch of positive ratings. I'm looking at it on Amazon. I think it's 1,485 ratings. Uh, the average is 4.8, so that's 0.2 under the top rating five. Um, and and basically, you know, you tell your life story in this. Um, but the, you know, you, there's also a transformation, and and this is something that in some ways I experienced and, and seen it, you know, coming from where we come from, where you kind of, you know, you live this life that's, there's a lot of negativity and, and, and sort of, you know, it, all paths lead to something negative and bad, right? Like prison or, or jail or something like that. And, um, and essentially you were able to really turn your life around and, and make something positive out of it. Um, you know, can you just talk about sort of the, the mentality of of where you started and where you're at and, and why it's important for, like, young black men in America to to learn that, that lesson? Yeah, man, you know, I uh, came from the bottom. Came from the bottom, um, put in the work, and, you know, I didn't, I, I, I didn't fall on this, in the beginning, I did. I was I was the victim. It was everybody's fault but mine. Uh, I can never get out. And but I, I changed my mindset and and uh, decided I, I'm not going to be a victim. I'm going to be a victor. Uh, I'm going to be a victor, and I'm going to win and I'm going to crush it. And uh, and and even when I was losing, I still had the mindset of I will win. And uh, a lot of that comes from my mom, her mentality, uh, what she beat into me, because she's the one that beat into me this concept of you are not a victim. I don't care what happened to you. I don't care, you know, what happened to your father. I don't care where we are. Don't come at me with that victim shit. Yeah, my mom was was blunt and real. And uh, even to this day, she's 70 years old, but uh, people think she's my my sister because, you know, she's uh, she's super fit. She has her own YouTube channel and Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've seen it. Yeah. yeah. She's doing pull ups and all that other stuff. But she, even now she's like, I'm not going to be a victim. You know, she's like, you know, I'm not going to I don't want to rely on the medical system. I don't want to rely on medication. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to take ownership of myself. 
And so that person that she is now, that message that she uh, pushes out via her socials, that was what I heard every single day of my life. And so, you know, that's why I'm at where I'm at now. Because it was all about that mindset. And I just say that to young black men, young Hispanic men all across the country. It's like, yo, you can either look at your 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 situation and say, hey, uh, uh, you know, this is everybody's fault and uh, I'm never going to get out. Or you could look at your situation and say, hey, it's time to turn these lemons into lemonade. And I'm going to do things right and on the up and up and get it done. And before you know it, you might look up and be a successful millionaire. Or maybe you don't even need to be a millionaire. And you make it seven hundred, eight hundred. My brother, my brother makes seven hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars a year as an engineer. You know, because again, he didn't fall back on that 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 victim mindset. I got another brother who's in med school. You know, I got another brother who's an ER doctor. Grew up in the Bronx in the hood, just like me. You know, what I mean, he's my half brother. Um, but you know, he, you know, he, you know, he, uh, he was able to rise up. So I got another family member that grew up in the hood, and, and she's one of the top business consultants in in Connecticut. You know what I mean? So it's all about that mindset. You know, we could overcome anything, um, but you gotta, you gotta convince yourself first. Yeah. And, and, you know, I agree. Like, like that's really the way to do it. And, um, and not to get like too political, but obviously in the last few years, um, there's been a lot of talk around race and, and, um, you know, issues with the police. And I I think we spoke about the, some of the police issues on the first podcast, um, you know, back in the, I forget exactly what year this was enacted, but they had to stop and frisk in New York. Um, you know, I experienced a lot of that in the nineties, where like, you know, you're just walking down the street and you t- you're not doing anything wrong. You know, you're go- whatever you're doing, going to a store, going to the park, like whatever you're doing. And, uh, you know, you make eye contact with like police and they just hop out and they're harassing you and they're getting in your face. And um, in, in many situations, it's, there's like could be physical abuse involved. And it got to a point where like for me and, and I, I would assume perhaps it's similar for you, but. Um, and me and like my peers, like we, were, we, we wouldn't be doing anything wrong. And you see cops and your heart rate just goes up because, you know, there's a chance that they're going to harass you and like potentially arrest you for something stupid or, you know, and or like just humiliate you. And um, and, and that I feel like had to change. Right. And and there were some things that happened that the stop and frisk wasn't considered constitutional and they took that away. So I think that's a good thing. But um, one of the problems I have with uh, the the movement of, you know, trying to advance black interest and, and the rights of, of black people in America is I feel like a lot of it, like, essentially says, like, we're victims because we're yeah. black. And, yeah. and I, I hate that because... I'm I'm not a victim, you know. Like I, I one of my good friends is uh he's a first generation American, but his family comes from Ghana and uh and he's 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 from the Bronx and uh the South Bronx, which is like crazy wild place. And um, you know, his father drove taxis for years and you know, he got his master's degree, he's a teacher and he's about to become a principal and it's like if he had that mentality that he was a victim, that because his because of his skin color he he couldn't make it in America, he wouldn't be where he's at. 
and 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 I, I, that's my number one problem with I feel like the the sort of black movement today is I feel like there's an element of it where it's like you know we're victims and and you 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 can't you can only climb so high because white people are oppressing you and you're a victim and it's like bro like there's there's no way like 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 black people are, are physically strong mentally strong like like we're, we're not victims you know I, I refuse to you know to believe that yeah i i'm, I'm in uh, we're in the same boat bro i got too many i got too many people who come from where i came from including myself who rose up into greatness and uh interestingly a lot of them are from nigeria or yeah. you know other parts of Africa, you know, or even India. But, you know, I don't know what it is, man. Uh, it's something about maybe it's an immigrant thing, you know, maybe it's the way immigrant parents raise their kids, you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, but there's no, I, I'm, there, if I can make it and my brother, there's no excuses. No excuses. But I, I, I too hate that victim mindset. And, you know, a lot of it is instilled by politicians who just want to keep keep people in as victims, because if you may remain as a victim, then you go vote for them. Right. You know what I'm saying it's like a big grift. And uh, and it's it's so unfortunate because like you you see like the like discourse online. Right. Like, I mean, like I, like, I, I try and limit how much like toxic shit I, I see each day, you know, like. Like I, I try and have like a positive uh, mentality, and and like life can be toxic on its own without like going on the internet and like getting pissed off because of what you're seeing on Twitter or some stupid shit. And um, but I I just see like all this stuff, and it's like it's it's so disheartening in a way, like for like the younger, you know, black and Hispanic generation where people are like really have this victim mentality, like. Oh, like I, you know, we—I I could never rise to a certain level because of white supremacy. It's like, bro, that's complete garbage. Like, you know, like there's so many successful black and Hispanic people in the U.S. and and around the world, really. You know, um, so it's and and this is the thing, right? Like, like that's why I feel like your story is so important because, you know, to be where you and me come from, and then to get to where you're at. It's, it's so important and and like I said I think I said it earlier in the in the show like um, when I'm seeing all these different things that you're doing like I, I believe I, I messaged you and told you this like it's really inspiring to see that because of like just knowing like you know what life was like 20 30 years ago you know up here in New York uh, to, to where you're at now and and, and you know I just want to say like you're you're really killing it and uh, it's it's great to see it and um, you know I hope people get the book and, and, and watch, you know, the films and, and all the stuff that you're doing because it's really awesome stuff. Most definitely, man. Most definitely. Thank you for all you do and thank you for having me on, my man. Yeah, yeah. A anytime, man. Like, anytime, you know, I know you're a super busy guy and, you know, you're probably doing a bunch of podcasting. Well, yo, well, yo I'm going to be in New York. Come to my book launch event, man. It's going to be in, in the Bronx at the Lit Bar on July 25th. Oh, no shit. Okay. Oh, yeah, dope. Okay. yeah, Dwight Howard is co-hosting it. Uh, he's going to be moderating it. Dwight Howard, who uh, was on the Fox show with me. Oh, okay, because I, I saw that in your story, but, I, oh, that's crazy, because I, I guess I didn't put two and two together that it was in New York. For some reason, I thought it was somewhere else. Okay. 
Yeah, no, it's in the Bronx, man. It's in the Bronx. Oh, that's dope. So, wh- wh- where is the lip bar? It's uh, you know what? Let me. I'm a. I'm a. I'm a message you. This it has all the information on it right now. You got it. You got it. You got an RSVP invite, but okay. I'll drop it on your Instagram so all the information is right there. Oh, dope bet. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's gonna be a dope event, man. It's gonna be a dope. We do. We're gonna do a Q and A signing launch event. It's gonna be sick. Oh, that's dope. All right, bet. bet. Yeah. All right. So, yeah. So, again, you know, it's great having you on here Um, for the audience. Check out the book. I'm telling you, it's great. Um, The day that this drops, the book, that's when the book's going to launch on the 25th. Um, And it it really reads like a like a Tom Clancy, like a Vince Flynn, uh, you know, thriller. And then what makes it awesome is that Remy actually lives some of this stuff. So it's 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 not like just complete fantasy, like it's lived experience. So. Check it out. It'll be available everywhere books are sold, right? Everywhere where books are sold. Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, uh, you know, Audible, iTunes. You know, people want to get a sign. Well, uh, uh, you have your, I think you have until the 18th to purchase a signed copy on Talk Shop Live. But, but yeah, everywhere else where books are sold, you can get it. All right, dope, dope. Okay, so, yeah, again, thank you for coming here. Uh, you know, I appreciate uh, everything you're doing, your message. Uh, it's, it's all good stuff, brother. Thanks. Uh, thank you, my man. I appreciate you.